Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. A week in the news filled with loss. Millions more lost their jobs, and more than 16,000 Americans have lost their lives from COVID-19. President Trump says we are closer to turning the corner. Millions of Americans are making profound and difficult sacrifices in their own lives because they know it will save the lives of countless others, and that's exactly what it's doing. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says the curve may be flattening in his state, but it's no time to pull back. This virus has been ahead of us from day one. We've underestimated the enemy, and that is always dangerous, my friends. And we should not do that again. And in other news this week, Bernie Sanders is out of the presidential race. While this campaign is coming to an end, our movement is not. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us that, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, end quote. The fight for justice is what our campaign has been about. So much to talk about this week, and we have a terrific panel. Joining me via Skype from New York is Jillian Tett. She's chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large U.S. of the Financial Times. Jillian, nice to have you. Hello, great to be on the show. From Washington, Yamish Alcindor. She's White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Yamish, always great to have you. Hi, Jane. Happy to be here. Thank you. And Lenny Bernstein, he's a health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post. Lenny, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So the coronavirus, of course, impacting so many people in devastating ways. We'll get to the economic impact and the unemployment numbers in just a moment. But first, Yamish, nationwide, 16,000 people have died of COVID-19. There are more than 460,000 cases in the United States. In fact, more Americans have tested positive than in Italy, Spain and France combined. What is the sense at the White House about where we are as a nation in the midst of this pandemic, Yamish? The sense is that there's a deep understanding among White House officials that this is a tragedy and that Americans are still very much scared. Um, Health officials at the White House, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the lead scientist on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, says that there is there are signs that the social distancing, um, everyone staying home, that that is having an impact and they're starting to see a sort of flattening of the curve, which is what we had been hoping for. But there are still other cities like Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, um, which may see their numbers increase. They may become hotspots. They've been warning about that all week. And of course, this week, more than any other week, we've been talking about the disparity among African-Americans. They are more likely to die because they're more likely to have underlying conditions. So the White House says that they're working on collecting that data. Of course, the president is eager to get the government back open and and to at least recommend that, even though it's going to be a governor's decision. But he's looking at possibly May 1st, even though there still isn't a national testing system in place in the way that would allow people to have widespread testing, as you see in other countries like South Korea. We'll get to testing uh, in a minute. Uh, Lenny, the White House task force changed their projections this week, estimated that 61,000 Americans will die of coronavirus. That's a lot, uh, but that's down from 100 to 200,000. Here's Dr. Deborah Burks, part of the president's uh, coronavirus task force, saying that Americans can take credit for those changing models showing lower than anticipated deaths. What has been so remarkable, I think, to those of us who have been in the science fields for so long is how important behavioral change is and how amazing Americans are in adapting to and following through on these behavioral changes. So, yes, some suggestions of a glimmer of hope, uh, generally speaking. In New York, the governor says the curve may be flattening, Lenny, but uh, now you hear, as Yamish just mentioned, uh, new hotspots in Baltimore, Philadelphia, D.C. What does that tell you about how this virus is spreading? 
like any outbreak, the virus spreads irregularly. It doesn't smoothly move across the country. It hopscotches. It's an opportunistic virus. If, you know, there's a gathering here or a church service there or a party there, it can break out in any place. Um, the good news, as Dr. Burks so well put it, is that social distancing works. We, and I, I bet even the experts, have been pleasantly surprised at how well Americans are observing the social distancing restrictions, and it is starting to have an impact. Now, we're a long, long way from having quelled the virus, but that is a bit of very encouraging news. The other big story uh, this week, of course, are the historic number of Americans who are out of work. 6.6 million Americans filed for jobless claims last week. That means in the past three weeks, nearly 17 million Americans have filed for unemployment. It is just staggering. That's more job losses than the Great Recession produced over two years, Jillian. This is the kind of a sudden halt to the U.S. economy. It really has no precedent. It absolutely has no precedent. And what's happening right now with the coronavirus is first and foremost a tremendous medical tragedy, but the economic shock is extraordinary as well. And unfortunately, a rash of surveys came out this week that suggests it's only going to get worse in the coming weeks. People are talking about the unemployment rate beating potentially the Great Depression of the 1930s. And that raises very big questions, not just about the extraordinary human toll and the suffering that's occurring, but the knock-on impacts going forward on things like the mortgage market, on retailers and all the other areas of the economy. Right. And as you say, economists bracing for 20 million Americans out of work by the end of the month. I mean, that would push unemployment toward 15 percent, which is astonishing to think that in February, just so such a short time ago, unemployment was at three, three and a half percent with 113 straight months of job growth, Jillian. Absolutely. And I hate to say it, but those are some of the more optimistic um, projections. There are even gloomier projections with suggesting even higher unemployment numbers. Now, the good news is that the American government is scrambling, racing to try and counteract this huge shock, both through the very dramatic measures unveiled this week through the Federal Reserve, but also through efforts like trying to give loans to small businesses to keep people employed. And the scale of response has been almost as stunning as the actual economic shock. The bad news, though, is that no one actually knows whether it's going to work fast enough. And at the moment, the omens aren't looking good. So let's talk about that, Yamish. Um, the federal government, of course, has launched this $2.3 trillion program to try to stop the bleeding with the economy in free fall this week. The Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, asked Congress to replenish the $350 billion small business program because it's simply being overwhelmed uh, by demand. But as I read it, $250 billion was denied. This is all stalled in Congress. What's going on? Well, Congress is really still negotiating um, how Democrats and Republicans are going to come to a place where both parties feel like they um, agree on what should be done. Both parties, though, sources tell me, are interested, of course, in helping small businesses and helping Americans deal with this economic tragedy, which is what it really has turned into. What I will say is that there was this really robust debate among Democrats and Republicans long before this pandemic about what role the federal government should play. And Republicans were the ones that were usually into talking about private companies and philanthropy helping people. And Democrats were the ones who would say it's the government that we that the government needs to be the backstop for people's lives. I think that debate has been settled. Everyone's decided the government needs to help people. So as a result, we're going to see billions of dollars, possibly trillions of dollars more um, go into helping people as people face this this uncertain future. Right. And lots of people still waiting uh, for their help from the government. Uh, we had a lot of listeners leave us voicemails. Here's one from William in Appaloosa, Louisiana. He said he lost his job as a prep cook in New Orleans. A lady in the United Way who's wonderful, helped me out. She got me a little bit of food. And uh, he got me a tent. So I'm living in a tent in the woods. I have no information on when I'm going to get assistance from the government. 
Uh, I am. I it's just going on the fourth week now that I've lost wages. Uh, I I am homeless, and uh, it's just a horrible situation. And uh, I I am running out of options. I'm running out of food, and uh, we really need some help out here. Jillian, the most vulnerable among us are suffering the most. And the American safety net, to be honest, wasn't meant to catch so many millions of people at once. Jillian, many people are still waiting, still waiting for their check from the government. Absolutely. And recordings like that are absolutely heartbreaking for all of us, particularly anyone who's lucky enough to be listening to that from the comfort of their own home, which is what I'm doing. Um, The reality is that American safety net was very, very full of holes even before this crisis started. Unfortunately, the crisis is exposing all the holes. Or if you like, it's like a very strong wind, which is revealing all the cracks in a household. And the consequences are absolutely brutal. The government is scrambling to try and create more and more programs to respond. At last count, there are 11 different programs coming out of the Federal Reserve and Treasury, each of which have got these their own acronyms. It's really acronym soup. But looking at it, it's a bit like, you know, a game of whack-a-mole. You know, no sooner does one problem emerge, then the government jumps in and then another one emerges. Or it's a bit like that boy trying to put his finger in the dike to stop the flood coming across Holland. Um, It's really engaged in a race against time. And it's very unclear whether the infrastructure is in place in terms of the social safety net or even the political accord is in place to actually get enough aid to help enough Americans to really stave off this medical tragedy turning into an economic tragedy. Well, that's right. And Lenny Bernstein, there are the economic consequences, of course, on one hand, but the real tension thinking about a possible another wave of this virus if social distancing is relaxed. So, you know, this give and take that people are trying to figure out, Lenny. Exactly. Um, We finally have achieved some progress against this virus. And all the scientists are saying that this is no time to back off, that we are now in position to get past this, but we are not past it. We're not close to past it. Um, I want to point out that while the coasts have seen the coronavirus and sort of a lot of what it has to throw against us, the middle of the country has not yet really experienced that. The, The virus is moving in from the coast. So if we were to open up the middle of the country, we might do it even before the virus Uh, And it brings its worst to those places. Rural America is next. No question about it. It is our Week in the News Roundtable. Great panel, Lenny Bernstein, Yamish Alcindor, and Jillian Tett. Stick with me. We'll be right back. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. It's our Week in Review with a great panel this hour. Yamish Alcindor with PBS NewsHour, Lenny Bernstein of The Washington Post, and Jillian Tett from The Financial Times. Here's some sound of an ICU nurse in New York City uh, being interviewed by CNN on Thursday. Everyone has the same thing. The patients keep coming. There's more death. There's, there's more of that. Um, so, yeah, emotionally, it, it, there's a lot of anxiety. But, you know, my colleagues and I, we, we, we talk to each other, we joke around, we really try and like keep it together. But yeah, it, it is definitely an anxious time. 
takes an emotional toll and a physical toll uh, as well. Lenny Bernstein, let me start with you here. Um, the president is talking about, you know, opening the, the country. At some point, we have to start again, right, and reopen the economy. He says he wants to reopen with a big bang sooner rather than later. And who's to say when that is? But one big obstacle for opening the economy is that the administration has yet to figure out how to expand testing for COVID-19 nationwide. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said this week that testing is going to be, quote, the bridge to the new economy. And yet the federal government this week announced it will end funding for coronavirus testing sites. And so I'm wondering, Lenny, what's the future of testing in this country? Well, think about yourself going back to work. Are you going to be confident um, when you have to go back into a group setting if you don't know that the people around you have been tested for the virus and that they don't have it? Um, and that they can't be tested regularly. I don't think anybody's going to be real confident about that. Um, even though we will be going back slowly and some of us will still be working from home and there'll be greater distancing, in all the places where we gather, we need to have some assurance that the people around us are not sick and they're not going to give it to us. So testing has to be ramped up. And so do you think that will ultimately be left to the states now with the federal government ending its funding of coronavirus testing sites as of today nationwide? I. I think it will be left up to the states and the private sector. If the federal government's going to get out, uh, others are going to have to step in. There are successful models, Yamish, South Korea, Iceland, Thailand, New Zealand. They've done enough testing that they can kind of get out of their own lockdown, testing to determine who might have an antibody to the, to the virus, who was infected and maybe was asymptomatic. I mean, testing was, is, and will be the cornerstone of this novel virus, correct? That's right. And we had a pretty remarkable moment yesterday at the White House where the president was the, the question was put to the president. Don't you need a national testing system, um, a widespread testing system before we can reopen the government and ease social distancing guidelines? And his answer was one word. No, he said that he doesn't believe that. He says we're talking about three more than 300 million people and it's just not going to happen. Of course, a couple months ago, the president said anyone who wants a test can have a test. And that just never turned out to be true. It's still not true now. We're hearing all sorts of stories of people who cannot get tested, who have symptoms, who are still not able to get access to these tests. Um, but the president is also very focused on the fact that there are one some governors, including the governor of South Carolina, who are anxious to, to loosen the social distancing guidelines. And he's also very cognizant of the fact that the economy is very much tied to his reelection election campaign and the idea that he was going to run on the economy and run on the fact that he had this great economy before this pandemic happened. So he wants to see the economy open up with this big bang, mainly because he also wants to be able to run on that. Well, and he's also not setting a date. I mean, he's careful not to talk about specific dates. Last time he did talk about opening the country up by Easter, obviously that didn't happen. So clearly he's torn as he tries to save lives and save the American economy, Amish. That's right. But the, the, I should say the White House sources that I've been talking to, they're already the date that he's eyeing. So even though President Trump doesn't want to come out on camera and say this is the next date that I'm looking at, he is very much eager in May to open up the economy. And I think also um, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said that on CNBC this week that he is looking at May 1st as a way to possibly ease some of the guidelines, even if it doesn't mean places like New York. It might mean other places that have not seen the level of outbreaks of that city. But we go back to this idea of testing. There are a lot of people who are asymptomatic who could be spreading the virus in, in places that we think are not hotspots that are, in fact, that do, in fact, have high levels of um, transmission and spread. So many people are talking about the timing of all this when we might be able to return to the lives we uh, once knew. Dr. Anthony Fauci was asked about that this week. Here he is on CBS uh, talking about what Americans can expect maybe this summer. Can you envision a summer at this point based on the models where people are going back to beaches, people are going to baseball games, weddings are happening, reunions are happening? Is that in the cards right now? It, it can be in the cards. And, and I say that with some caution, because, as I said, it, when we do that, when we pull back and try to open up the country, as we often use that terminology, we have to be prepared 
that when the infections start to rear their heads again, that we have in place a very aggressive and effective way to identify, isolate, contact, trace, and make sure we don't have those spikes that we've seen now. Lenny Bernstein, the CDC is talking about getting workers back on the job. I mean, that includes things like taking temperatures at work, right? Wearing masks on the job, no congregating in, uh, in, in the kitchen or the lounge, better circulation in buildings and cleaning protocols and all the rest. I mean, from a health perspective, what are the first steps to reopening this country? Well, I think you mentioned them. Um, Before I get there, I just want to say another thing that Anthony Fauci said this week is that the virus is going to determine this schedule. And I think that more than whether we'll be able to go on summer vacation is the is the key point that he made. Um, Yes. In other pandemics like um, epidemics, sorry, like uh, Ebola, what they did as they started to open up is they put those protections in place. Temperature is is it an okay guide? Um, there are precautions that you wouldn't normally think that you could institute at workplaces. You could make everybody, you know, wash their hands. You could have extra cleaning of of the hallways and the walls, and be constantly wiping down for virus. So you can you can institute these things. They're not normal for us. We don't think of them, but there are things you could do if you wanted to very slowly move back into the workforce. Another one would be uh, nobody sits within six feet of each other, and that's going to take some doing. Right. Uh, the, the problem is, bottom line, Yamish, is, again, testing. We don't have an aggressive testing system in this country, and certainly no contract tracing in place state by state. That's right. And I will say that it has been something that's just existed for since the beginning of this pandemic. And the president um, has said a lot of times that the United States is doing a lot more testing and is, the, is doing more testing than other countries. And right now, while we are doing a lot more testing than we were at the beginning, we're still not per capita um, testing as many people as other countries like South Korea. Um, the other thing to note is that the president has been saying that he is very much thinking about kind of the people's lives and saying that a lot of people are anxious to go back to work. But I also think for at least based on my sources that the president is inclined to listen to the health experts. So when look, the virus will determine the date that we go back. I tend to believe that the president really does um, lean into Dr. Fauci's um, assessments. And when I talk to Dr. Fauci, he says he has a really good relationship with the president. So it seems like there's some synergy there, even if the president is very eager to go back. President Trump uh, unleashed on the World Health Organization this week, accusing it of acting too slowly to sound the alarm about the coronavirus. Here he is, President Trump, on Tuesday. They missed the call. They could have called it months earlier. They would have known. And uh, they should have known. And they probably did know. So we'll be looking into that very carefully. And we're going to put a hold on money spent to the W. H.O., we're going to put a very powerful hold on it, and we're going to see. It's a great thing if it works, but when they call every shot wrong, that's no good. And here is the World Health Organization Director General responding to the president's criticism. Please don't politicize this virus. It exploits the differences you have at the national level. If you want to be exploited, and if you want to have many more body bags, then you do it. If you don't want many more body bags, then you refrain from politicizing it. little back and forth there uh, this week, Yamish. Uh, but to be truthful and to be clear, President Trump is not the only one criticizing the WHO. In Japan, the deputy prime minister and f- uh, finance minister referred to uh, the WHO as the Chinese health organization because of its close ties to Beijing. There are plenty of critics who say, you know, their deference to Beijing exacerbated the spread of this disease, which is essentially what President Trump is saying. Yeah, and President Trump this week said that he was especially angry um, about two things. The first is that the WHO early on was saying that there weren't, there wasn't any human to human transmission. The second what were very, he says, critical of his moves to implement travel restrictions, um, to people coming from China. So the president is saying, look, we give the United, we give the WHO a lot of money as the United States, and we should really be rethinking that. Now I should say 
at one point he said, we're definitely pulling our money and pulling funding from the WHO. He walked that back just a couple minutes later saying, actually, I never said that. Um, so I think that even though he's very angry at the WHO, I'm not quite sure whether or not we're going to, whether or not the United States is going to pull all of their funding or if this is more of a threat to say, look, you need to get it together. And, and, and we're concerned about your relationship with China. Jillian Tett, what did you hear in there? Well, what I hear was a tremendous tragedy because many people would share the criticism of the WHO in the last year in terms of its apparent tolerance of some of the mismanagement, misinformation from China. But the reality is that America has been incredibly um, cavalier with the WHO of many years, and they are the only global group at the moment which can deal with a pandemic threat. And so, frankly, America should be doubling down at this point, not threatening to walk away. And I say that partly because I myself, in a very early part of my life, worked briefly for a WHO immunization program out in Pakistan as a volunteer. And I've seen with my own eyes the incredible work that can be done through immunization and vaccinations. But for America to not show an ability to support and essentially enable the WHO to get its job done at the moment is really a failure of global leadership. Speaking of responses uh, to the virus, back in this country, Lenny Bernstein, you wrote a piece about uh, local and statewide response in places, specifically Ohio, long before there were any warnings nationally. What did you find, Lenny? Well, we were looking at the numbers and we noticed how dramatically different Ohio's uh, case numbers and death numbers were from uh, similarly sized states right near it, uh, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Michigan, to be specific. Uh, there are about a third of the cases of those three other states. They even have fewer cases than Indiana, a much smaller state nearby. So what does this tell us? Does it tell us that Ohio did a, is doing a terrific job, or does it tell us that, that Ohio just hasn't gotten hit by the virus yet? At the moment, there's a lot of credit being given to Governor Mike DeWine, he shut down a uh, sports festival that would have brought 60,000 people a day into a convention center. He shut that down on March 4th, long before things were being shut down around the country. And then the three medical systems, giant medical systems there, have been very prepared for this. They even were prepared for a worst-case scenario, and now it doesn't look like they're going to have to handle one. Mm-hmm. We got a voicemail, actually, from one of our listeners in Ohio, uh, perhaps in response to your piece, Lenny. Here's Gloria from Columbus. She left us a voicemail praising her state's reaction to the pandemic, in particular, the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, lieutenant governor, the Ohio Department of Health director, all doing a great job, she says, at responding to the pandemic. They are working tirelessly six days a week um, for an hour and a half each day to inform us of the latest detailed information on all aspects of the virus. And they use many uh, analogies to help us better understand this vital information. And they also managed to throw in some humor, which is unrelated to this serious situation. So I've never been prouder to be an Ohioan than during this pandemic. Governors getting very high marks, generally speaking, across this country, uh, Yamish Alcindor, uh, in response to the pandemic locally, higher marks, to be frank, than, than the president is nationally. We saw this early on when the president was still downplaying the virus and there were there was polling done. Um, a majority of the country was saying that they felt more confident in the role that their local government and their state government was taking than in the White House. And that has persisted and has been a narrative that has followed the president because long before the White House decided to put out its social distancing guidelines, we had already seen governors take, we have to close down schools, we have to close down um, restaurants and bars and make them delivery and takeout only. So the president was in some ways following the governors and what they were doing when he finally issued national recommendations. And the governors have also been very clear that they don't think that they're getting the support that they need from the federal government. And the president has said, well, we should be a backstop. We shouldn't be the, the place where governors look to um, as their first line of, of, against the coronavirus, which has been controversial. Mm. Uh, Lenny Bernstein, I know you have to leave us here. So a few quick questions uh, before you go. Uh, do you see masking becoming a, a staple of Americans as we, as we look to getting back to a new normal in this country? Masks, everyone wearing masks out in uh, out in public. In the short term, yes. Um, 
Maybe not if you're walking through a park and there's nobody around, but I would not be surprised at all to see them in your workplace. What about hydroxychloroquine? President Trump has been talking about this in conjunction with the anti-malarial, uh, with uh, ZPAC as a possible uh, treatment. Where does that stand? He's, he's been touting this a lot. Um, trials are in the works. Where are we on that? Yes, there are trials going up all over the place to see if that works. It's untested. It can have very severe um, effects on your heart. Uh, It probably won't kill you, but there are people who it can throw into a dangerous arrhythmia, and uh, you are taking a risk if you are taking it. Now, lots of doctors are taking it. Lots of people are taking it because they figure, listen, by the time this thing hurts me, I could be long dead from the COVID-19 disease. But there is danger if you are taking an untested drug like that. And how long before a vaccine, Lenny Bernstein? Uh, they've been telling us 18 months to find one successfully. And then what they don't really talk about, and I think everybody should keep in mind, is how long will it take to scale that up so that they have doses for everyone and you don't have a, an inequality situation? We don't really know the answer to that question. But I think you should tack on some months beyond the 18, beyond the 12 to 18 months Uh, in your mind. And Lenny Bernstein, I noted this week that Dr. Fauci said that the practice of shaking hands in this country needs to be permanently discontinued. (laughs) I would love love to see that happen. Uh, There's nothing wrong with a little elbow bump or just sort of saying hi. That would be great. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post. Great pieces, great reporting. Lenny, thanks so much for sharing it with us today. Thanks for having me. Yamish Alcindor, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Jillian Tett, U.S. Managing Editor and Chair of the Editorial Board of the Financial Times. Stick with us. After the break, we'll talk about Senator Bernie Sanders dropping out of the presidential race. That and much more to come. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. On Monday, On Point, we'll look at New York City at the height of the COVID-19 crisis, why it hits so hard and spreads so fast. New Yorkers, we'd love to hear the story of your family, your neighborhood. What do you want the country to know and to learn from what you've experienced? Leave us a voicemail, 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. We're back now with a terrific panel for our Week in Review this hour. Yamish Alcindor, PBS NewsHour, and Jillian Tett from the Financial Times. Uh, Important holy days are upon us in this country. I'll play a couple of clips here. First, Rabbi Shmel Novak in Jacksonville, Florida, comparing this year's Passover to the Exodus. Here he is on WJXT on Wednesday. Egypt is not just this concept that the Jews left through 3,300 years ago. But for you and me and for all of us, we have to think every single year, what does the Exodus mean for me? And what do I have to break free from? What boundaries and limitations do I have? And I think we resonate. That resonates so much stronger this year when we're confined in our homes and there's social distancing and we're not supposed to be out in the streets. And on Friday, Pope Francis sent a message to Christians ahead of Holy Week, which ends on Saturday. The Pope saying, I cannot forget those who are sick with the coronavirus, those in the hospital. I am aware of the generosity of those who put themselves at risk for the treatment of this pandemic or to guarantee the essential services to society. So many heroes every day at every hour. Yamish Alcindor, I mean, it's it's a reminder. Life, life does go on, but in this case, amidst tremendous heartache and tragedy. 
That's right. And I, I've been thinking about how sad we all are and how, and how this Holy Week and being Catholic, I'm, I'm celebrating Good Friday today. Um, I just think about the fact that I can't be with my family. I can't be with my mom who is watching her masses on television. I, it just seems like it's exacerbated um, the feeling of, of being separated by my, by, from my family and from my friends. Um, and I've been really thinking about making sure I reach out to my, my friends who are single and living alone, because I just think we're in this moment where we're so anxious and worried about the future, but also just in the moment, having to deal with this kind of tremendous loss of the rituals that at least for me have brought me comfort over the years. There was another ritual this week in Wisconsin. Voting went on in Wisconsin. Lines to vote, people standing in the pouring rain for two and a half hours to get to the polls. Some poll workers wearing hazmat suits. Uh, Chris, one of our listeners in Madison, called us to tell us about the election there. She has been an election official for decades. She's decades. She's quarantined now because of possible exposure to COVID-19 from working the polls on Tuesday. My main concern this week is was I a pawn was was I instrumental in helping the Republicans in their voter suppression efforts uh, that really really bothers me uh, when I look at what happened in Milwaukee in particular did I did I take part in in something that in effect kept other people's votes from being counted. That was certainly not my intent, but it it causes me great concern. Here's an exchange at the White House uh, this week. Wisconsin Republicans forced the state to move forward with their in-person voting on Tuesday, despite these health and safety concerns. Here's President Trump responding to a question about it from an NBC News reporter about his opposition to mail-in voting. I think mail-in voting is horrible. It's corrupt. In Florida's election last month, didn't you? Sure, I I could vote by mail for that. How do you reconcile? Because I'm allowed to. Well, that's called out of state. You know why I voted? Because I happen to be in the White House, and I won't be able to go to Florida to vote. But let me just say, well, there's a big difference between somebody that's out of state and does a ballot and everything sealed, certified, and everything else. You see what you have to do with the certifications, and you get. Thousands and thousands of people sitting in somebody's living room signing ballots all over the place. No, I think that mail-in voting is a terrible thing. All right, Jillian, Ted, several issues uh, embedded in those two clips there. Um, Voting by mail, President Trump talking about uh, the concerns. And a lot of people, frankly, are, are thinking about an electoral system stretched to the breaking point. And is this a window into what we might expect in November? What do you see, Jillian? Well, it's certainly a very concerning moment because there are several things going on here. On the one hand, you appear to have a campaign, a verbal campaign of trying to sow doubt in so many of the pillars of American democracy underway, which needs to be fought. And it's very hard to fight back against that. At the same time, um, to be essentially saying that the only way to conduct elections is to get everyone physically to turn up at these polling booths, given all the risks, is clearly very damaging. Um, So what's happened is something that should be making anybody who cares about the future of civil society in America deeply concerned. And Yamish Alcindor, I mean, real issues about Milwaukee and people's votes being counted. What did you see? What I see is a foreshadowing of of an argument that the president is going to make all the way up into um, November in the general election, which is that somehow mail in voting is um, problematic and, and corrupt and full of fraud without any evidence that that is true. There's no evidence that mail-in voting, that people stuff their their mailboxes or vote in a way that they're not supposed to. The, the White House, they're going to provide reporters with some sort of evidence to back up the president's claims. We're still waiting on that evidence. I'll be surprised to see what the evidence is. Um, because, we're, again, I think we can't underscore enough that the president himself just last month, voted by mail, voted absentee ballot in Florida's primary. I think the president also has been very clear and said this, not in a direct quote, but it's pretty close to what he says. If the voting was to be expanded, Republicans would lose offices in all across the country. So there's a real admission.
mention there what what Republicans might say on background or off the record. The president said on the record, which is that they're worried that if there is an expanding of the vote of the electorate, that Republicans will not benefit from that. Hmm. Let me turn to presidential politics now. Uh, On Wednesday, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race for the Democratic nomination. Sanders said in a video message, quote, the fight for justice is what our uh, campaign has been about. Here he is. Turns out the Wall Street stockbrokers are not necessarily essential, but the clerk in the grocery store, the person at the pharmacy, the bus driver turns out to be pretty essential. Teachers turn out to be pretty essential. Maybe this is a time to rethink about what's essential, what our priorities are, what is really important in our country. Jillian Ted, based on the last few number of primaries in this country, this was certainly an inevitability, but um, surprised somewhat that he that he waited so long. Well, it certainly is a surprise that he waited so long. Um, But what's extraordinary about the current moment that we're living through in history is that although Bernie Sanders may have dropped out, we are nevertheless seeing the biggest expansion of the government in the economy in America that we've seen for many, many decades and which anyone could have imagined um, quite recently. And in all areas, whether it's the Federal Reserve getting involved in financial markets or whether it's the government getting involved in companies or even in areas like the backlash against the lack of benefits for gig workers, we're seeing echoes of Sanders' campaign and his mandate, his messages being picked up across the system. I mean, that is deeply, deeply ironic in every sense. That is a really interesting point. Bernie Sanders uh, saying, Yamish, that he'll work with Joe Biden, the presumptive nominee, to move his progressive ideas forward. Um, What does Sanders' exit mean now as Joe Biden tries to unify the Democratic Party in these extraordinary times, Yamish? Well, on a very basic sense, Bernie Sanders getting out means that we're officially in the general election season and that there are now two candidates, Joe Biden and and President Trump, who are vying for the presidency. Um, I think the other thing that it means is that Bernie Sanders is recognizing that the Democratic Party needs to consolidate much more quickly than they did in 2016. I covered Bernie extensively. And in 2016, he did not at the same time that he dropped out, then eagerly endorsed Hillary Clinton. It took him a long while to get behind her. In this case, what you saw was him immediately start to message to his supporters to say, look, I can't in good conscience continue to go on if I don't have a path toward victory. And he was signaling to his supporters, look, we need to get behind Joe Biden in a very clear way. Um, I think it can't be underscored enough the impact that Bernie Sanders had in his two presidential runs on the Democratic Party. He pulled the party further to the left. He infused all sorts of progressive ideas like free college. So he's still very much a person who was an iconic figure in the Democratic Party, even as he's still an independent from Vermont. But he's he's someone who's now, of course, going to get behind Joe Biden and try to win the presidency for Joe Biden. Mm. Well, we'll keep watching that. Let me move to another big story this week. The acting secretary of the Navy, Thomas Mudley, resigned this week. It came a week after he removed the captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt for sending a memo about his concerns of COVID-19 spreading on his aircraft carrier. Mudley then went to Guam to address the ship's sailors. That if he didn't think that information was was going to get out into the public, in this information age that we live in, then he was A, too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this. The alternate is that he did it on purpose. It was a betrayal of trust with me, with his chain of command. The former Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, suggested just yesterday that my decision was criminal. I assure you it was not, because I understand the facts, and those facts show that what your captain did was very, very wrong. Jillian, it's had such an interesting uh, story on so many levels uh, to see those sailors giving their captain a standing ovation when he was escorted off the ship. Uh, The captain wanted his sailors to be permitted to quarantine on land. Nearly 300 of them, of those sailors on board, are now infected, Jillian. What did you hear in this? Well, what we're seeing today in America are all kinds of extraordinary stories of bravery, of people putting service above personal comfort and trying to fight to keep people alive. And in many ways, this whole story should be seen through this prism, where once again, we had a captain who was trying to protect his sailors. And at a time when public trust 
in the agencies of government and the essentially the White House administration has been severely knocked in the last couple of years. This just adds to this climate of mistrust. But it's worth pointing it out, it also adds to this climate of polarization and partisan perception, because the story has been viewed very differently by Democrats um, from Republicans. Back to Washington, Yamish Alcindor. Uh, this week, President Trump removed the leader of a new watchdog panel charged with overseeing how the administration spends trillions of the coronavirus relief package dollars. Also importantly, this week, the president fired the inspector general who reviewed the whistleblower complaints that led to the president's impeachment. What is the significance of these changes in independent oversight within the administration, Yamish? Well, of course, there are two schools of thought. If you're a supporter of President Trump or President Trump yourself, he's saying, I have the right to do this. These are um, positions that I have will over and that I can choose who I want to fill these positions. The flip side of that, of course, is that critics of President Trump say that he's trying to erode at the very idea of having watchdogs and having inspector generals. And he's been lashing out at the idea of inspector generals, especially saying uh, the even the health and human services inspector general who found that there were dire shortages in hospitals, that she was somehow an Obama holdover, where in fact, she was someone who had been working um, in that office since 1999. But also, even if she had been at the Obama with the Obama administration, the idea is that you aren't supposed to be political if you're an inspector general. And we saw the inspector general for the intel community, Michael Atkinson, in this long statement say, I've never been political. I've been nonpartisan. And I I felt like I needed to give the whistleblower, in this case, the, the Ukraine whistleblower, I needed to make sure that there was some there was a moment where people could voice their concerns if they see abuse and that should continue. So the president is really up against, I think, uh, some really loud criticism here. Mm. Just a couple of minutes left here. Um, I want to end where we started with with COVID-19 and essentially an economy now in free fall. 6.6 million Americans filing for jobless claims last week, as we mentioned, had 17 million uh, out of work in the last three weeks and probably heading north of that, way north of that. Jillian Tent, I'm, I'm hearing from economists that the number of furloughed workers may be an important touch point here because, you know, employers want their workers on the books so they can keep their health insurance, maybe, you know, get some unemployment benefits. And then as we slowly come out of this, these workers can maybe jump back into their old jobs, of course, if they still exist, right? Is that an important indicator of how this economy recovers eventually, slowly, step by step? Well, we've just had an hour full of a lot of gloom. So let me try and be optimistic at a moment, because, of course, Easter is a time of rebirth and Passover is also about celebrating new beginnings and fresh hope. Um, So what the optimists amongst the economists are hoping is that workers are being furloughed. It seems that many of the jobs uh, that are now turning into jobless claims were temporary in some nature. And so the hope is that this is going to be a pause that will dramatically be reversed when the economy begins to reopen. The problem with the argument is that economics is as much about confidence as actual activity. And it's going to be hard to get the confidence to restart the economy until you have things like mass testing in place. But if you want one other source of optimism, let me point this out. Yamish said earlier that she was missing um, celebrating Good Friday with her family in person. Um, I'm also missing it, but I'm also celebrating a Good Friday service, essentially with some of my other family out in London and elsewhere across the world by internet. There's an extraordinary amount of innovation going on right now all around us as we've used technology in ways that we've never managed to before. So maybe, just maybe, one other aspect that's going to drive economic growth when we move into this recovery phase will be this incredible innovation that so many of us are actually engaged in. So well put. Uh, Really nice way to end, Gillian Tett. Thank you. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, listeners, we wish you peace and safety. And a great big thank you to a terrific panel, Yamish Alcindor, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Yamish, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Gillian Tett, chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large of the Financial Times. Gillian, thanks to you. Thank you. Legendary singer-songwriter John Bryan died this week from complications of COVID-19. We go out this hour with a prime classic, Souvenirs. I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. Memories, they can't be broken. 
There can't be a wine at carnivals for free. Well, it took me years to get those souvenirs, and I don't know how they slipped away from me. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Viet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.